Well, it's great to be able to take you through this short series uh, over the next three talks, which I've called Gospel Driven Guidance, Discovering God's Plan for Your Life. I hope you've had a chance to print out the leaflet. Uh, you'll find it really helpful. There's a number of different quotes uh, there, some pictures and also some blanks for you to fill in. And that'll help you concentrate as we go along and help raise some questions that you might like to reflect on afterwards. Uh, and you'll see that today's talk is called Point One, God's Will for All Things. Well, if you look at the handout, you'll see where I want to start uh, today is with what I've called our introductory dilemma, how to choose shampoo and Bibles. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, few would disagree, I think, with the observation that, generally speaking, we are overwhelmed by choice in 21st century Australia. Uh, I want to talk about shampoo briefly. So, uh, recently I went to a, my local supermarket, and when I was there, I made a point of counting how many brands of shampoo there were on the shelves. Uh, 42 brands, in fact. Uh, that's not even accounting for different quantities, you know, large or small. Um, there was shampoo for flat hair, for bouncy hair, for natural hair, for dyed hair, for stressed hair, even for people with no hair. Of course, uh, that kind of dilemma isn't limited just to the supermarket. I went into a Christian bookstore shortly afterwards looking for a new Bible, and when I was there, I discovered that in the Bible section you can get everything from red letter Bibles to wide margin Bibles, life application Bibles, study enhanced, spirit filled New Spirit-filled Bibles, uh, New Spirit-filled Bibles for students. Um, I wonder what they've discovered in recent times. Uh, there was the Fireside Bible, a Men's Bible, a Women's Bible, a Couples Bible, a Kids Bible, a Heaps Good Youth Bible, and a Large Print Bible, which I take it is a euphemism for old people. Sadly, this luxury of choice is actually a burden for many Christians. I met lots of Christians who are somewhat paralysed by so many good options, terrified that we might be letting God down. Actually, fearful that we have let him down. When it seems to me that what godly, faithful believers all over the world long to do is bring honour and glory to Jesus. Uh, hence the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossians, and by implication his prayer for us today, uh, it was in one of those readings, uh, Colossians 1 verses 9 and 10, printed there on your leaflet, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Uh, that word in verse 9, continually, uh, it's the sense of ongoing, uh, not because we're afraid of stuffing up, but because Christians all over the world really, really, really want to live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Don't you? Well, my goal for these three talks is to build up and encourage every one of us that we can do this because our God promises to show us what he wants. So, Point one there on your handout on the left-hand side. Let me start with some definitions. Now, this is really important in this area of guidance, and this is often where lots of the confusion and misunderstanding comes, I find. So there's a couple of definitions I want to begin with, and you'll see them printed there on your handout and the blanks for you to fill in. I want to distinguish between God's sovereign will and God's moral will. God's sovereign will and God's moral will. Uh, God's sovereign will, here's the blank for you to fill in. What God says will happen. God's sovereign will is what God says will happen, whereas God's moral will is how God wants us to live. How God wants us to live. 
His sovereign will, what he says will happen. His moral will, how he says he wants us to live. In other words, God's sovereign will is about what God says must take place. There's a couple of examples there printed on your handout from Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 27 and 28. Uh, here, uh, the apostles say, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And again in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Both of these passages are examples of what God says will happen, what will take place. His son who died has been raised to life and he will be exalted forever and ever. Yet at the same time, the New Testament also talks about God's moral will, how God wants us to live. And so, for example, 1 Timothy 2 verse 3, uh, This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, and so on. These are descriptions of God's moral will, of how God wants us to live, but importantly, clearly, we are able to ignore him. Well, why start here with these definitions? Well, because as I said, oftentimes there's confusion and misunderstanding amongst Christians about what God's will is in the Bible. The implication, I think, of these two usages of the word, and it's printed at the bottom of your handout there on the left-hand side, God does not have a detailed and discoverable plan for your life. Here's the big implication I want to draw. We're talking about God's will, sovereign will, and God's moral will. God does not have a detailed and discoverable plan for your life. Uh, that sentiment is what I often call the bullseye approach to guidance. And that's why there's a picture of a bullseye at the bottom of the page. This is the idea that, um, sadly, I think many Christians believe God has one particular will for your life and it's up to you to try and hit it. And if you don't, well, clearly you're in trouble. I think the bullseye approach to guidance is really unhelpful uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, at one level, it's deeply impractical. I mean, to come back to that somewhat trivial example I gave you before about me trying to choose shampoo uh, at the supermarket, should I have sat down in the middle of the aisle and waited patiently for the Lord to guide me to the right product? I suppose I could have, but if every decision I made in life was like that, it would be deeply impractical. I'd never get anything done, to be honest. And I guess to add to that, I think such an approach places a terrible burden on Christians. That sense that you must make the right decision every time, otherwise you might have stepped outside of God's will. At the risk of sounding crass, surely God's got better things to worry about than my choice of shampoo? And I guess, given the almost universal angst amongst Christians when it comes to this topic of guidance, if this was the way in which God expected us to live, you'd have to say that, quite frankly, God's not done a very good job of communicating what he wants. So, what I'd love for you to do is grab a pen, that pen that you're using to fill the books, I want you to cross out the bullseye. Go on, go ahead. Just actually cross it out. 
because it's an unhelpful way of looking at how God wants us to live. Now, before I move on, please don't mishear me. God certainly does care about the details of your life. Uh, Take, for example, Matthew 10, where Jesus reminds us that the Father in heaven cares what happens to the sparrows, so certainly he cares about what happens to us. I'm not saying that God doesn't care about the details, but I am saying thinking that God is so concerned that you get it exactly right, that you hit that bullseye, it's deeply unhelpful and ultimately it's destructive. So for the rest of this talk, what I want to reflect on then is what God's sovereign will is for our life. Uh, we'll come back to his moral will next, uh, in the next two talks. But today, I just want to reflect for a few minutes on his sovereign will. And so if you look at the right-hand side of your handout, point two, the mystery of God's will is to unite all things under Christ. Uh, that great reading we had from Ephesians chapter 1 paints a magnificent picture about what God's sovereign will is, what he says must take place. And in fact, what he says must take place, not just for you and me, but in fact, for all of creation. Just a few brief comments on this incredible passage of Ephesians 1. I've printed a few verses there on your handout. Uh, Let me read again verses 8 through 10. Uh, With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. A couple of brief comments. Firstly, when it talks about mystery, uh, mystery there doesn't mean like a whodunit, or a riddle, or mysterious. Rather, mystery in the New Testament just means something that was unknown that has now been revealed. And the mystery that he's talking about here is, uh, well, in a sense, the whole passage is all about the wonderful things that God has promised and now brought to fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, so if you think back over some of the things in Ephesians 1, he has made us holy and blameless in his sight. This is wonderful news for anyone who has a guilty conscience. Or verse 5, he adopted us as sons. This is for anyone who's ever felt alone or alienated, who craves acceptance. Or in verse 7, he talked about redemption by his blood, forgiveness of sins. This is great assurance for anyone who has ever tried and failed to make amends for their mistakes. But the reason I want to reflect on Ephesians 1 is because of the conclusion that's drawn in verses 9 and 10. Because what Paul is saying is that what God is doing and what he's done in Jesus, it's not just for you and me. It's not even for every person. It's actually for everything, human and non-human. Everything is to be brought together in unity under the Lordship of Christ. Uh, That's how I finished there, verse 10. Bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus. Now, I'm sure you can tell the meaning of will that Paul is using in this passage. It's not moral will he's talking about. He's talking about God's sovereign will, about what must take place. And so the big theme throughout uh, these series of talks, you'll see printed there on your handout, is I want to distinguish between guidance and what I've called gospel-driven guidance. You see, guidance asks questions like, God, what should I do with my life? Whereas gospel-driven guidance says, God, remind me 
of what you are doing in and for all of creation. What I really love about the Ephesians 1 passage is that uh, in the context of a series all about guidance, about choices and decisions, do you remember who does the choosing in Ephesians 1? Verse 4, he chose us before the creation of the world. It's God's choice that matters, much more than any decision we might make. Imagine, if you will, if you're in the final briefing um, meeting prior to an invasion to retake your homeland. You know, assume that enemies have come in and overrun you and you've been forced out and you're preparing to make the final invasion to come back in and uh, retake what is yours. I'm sure that as you're gathered around in the room, you're eager to hear about your particular mission, about the part that you're going to play. But before he hands out individual assignments, the general leading the charge always starts by talking about the overall strategy. Because understanding the big picture and God's overall goal helps us make sense of what he's asking us to do. Well, there's a question there on your handout. Implication, why does God act this way? Why does God act this way? Why doesn't God just tell us what he wants and then use his divine power to force us to comply? Well, I think the answer is that giving us freedom in our decisions, it honours and upholds our humanity. And ultimately, I think that's better. You see, though God's sovereign will will come to pass, you and I are not puppets on a string or actors in a play reading pre-written lines. Rather, we are free agents writing the script as we go along. God's moral will does say that there are ways in which we can live that are better or worse, but ultimately what we need to hear is that God's sovereign will sits over all. And instinctively, I think you and I know, as Christians, we know that there are lots of situations where, to be frank, there must be more than one way in which we can please God, more than one way in which we can live a life worthy of the Lord. A few years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine uh, who uh, was trying to decide, should he continue to be a pastor in the city in which we live, or should he go overseas to the mission field uh, in the Middle East? Surely, both of those choices are God-honouring, Christ-exalting decisions. Which means, my friend must be free to decide. And if somehow we conclude that, well, only one choice is in God's will and the other is not, then our thinking must be flawed. Now back to the bullseye idea then. If God doesn't have a detailed and discoverable plan for every aspect of your life, then instead of spending time struggling over, is this the choice that God's, that's within God's will? A much more liberating question to ask is, how do I conduct myself in a manner worthy of the Lord, whichever path I take? Again, to give you an illustration, you see there's a picture there on your handout. Hopefully you can see it. It's actually a map. It's a picture of Adelaide, uh, which you know most of us know. Adelaide is one of those cities that's laid out as a perfect rectangular grid. Uh, which means that, of course, 
Um, if you're trying to get from the eastern side of Adelaide to the western side, when it's a perfectly laid out grid with a series of straight lines, well, to get from one side to another, you'd say there are some general restrictions and parameters about how you do so. So for example, don't speed, don't drive in the bus lane, make sure you stop at the traffic lights. But within that context of general parameters and restrictions, you have complete freedom to choose your route. Some people choose to go straight through the middle. Others go around the side. Some choose to ride the bike track and others hop on the free bus or take the tram. I realise that some will find what I've just said to be a bit unsettling. God giving us freedom so we might use spirit-inspired wisdom, and that freedom, to be honest, actually sounds like hard work. Wouldn't it be easier if I just waited until God told me what I should do each time so I didn't actually have to think about it? Deep down, there's something in each of us which likes that. I think it's the reason why we prefer often rules and regulations. If God just tells me what to do, then if things don't work out, well, not only do I have to dwell on it, but he can't really blame me. I can just say, it's not my fault. I'm just doing what I was told. Maybe that's our response. The only problem is it will never help us grow in our character. More on that idea in talk three. At the very least, uh, one of the questions that comes is, well, if this is the way in which God wants us to act, why doesn't he at least lay out all the steps up front? You know, tell us all the movements in the big picture. Um, now, to be fair, this is for the control freaks like me, uh, who really are trying to say, well, so that we can plan for the journey as best as possible. Once again, can I suggest that it's actually God's kindness that he doesn't tell us all the tasks in advance, that he only reveals one step at a time? I spend my time working with university students and I found myself wondering how they would react if on the very first day of their degree they were given all the assignments for the next four years. I wonder how they'd feel. Overwhelmed, of course. And don't forget that even though God doesn't disclose all the information up front, he has given us the most important piece of information. He's given us the final outcome when all creation will be united in and under Christ. And so then on your handout, point three, because Jesus will be exalted forever, because Jesus will be exalted forever and ever, then whatever choice you and I make or don't make, whatever we do or don't do, our great confidence is that Jesus will still be exalted and he'll be exalted forever and ever. Everything will be united under his lordship. The guarantee is that because Christ has already died and risen again, all that's left is his return and the never-ending praise. One day, every knee in heaven and on earth will bow at the name of Jesus and every tongue will acknowledge that he is Lord, willingly or unwillingly, willingly, if we've lived lives that are worthy of him, waiting for him, looking forward to his return. And so we rise and hear that final glorious commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Or we will kneel unwillingly in a final act of defiance, 
like a defeated general who still refuses to accept that the battle has been lost. That Jesus will be exalted forever and ever has two implications for us and then a final conclusion. The implications there only had it. Firstly, what does this mean about stress and uncertainty when it comes to decision making? Well, to talk about stress and uncertainty, to state the obvious, most Australians, irrespective of stage of life, are deeply worried about the future, and particularly in these times. And to be honest, I think rightly so, given the completely unpredictable chaos of our world that we've seen in the last two years. But the thing is, we Christians need not be like that. In fact, we ought not be like that. Because we know the end from the beginning. We can embrace the joy of God-given freedom of knowing that whatever the particular decision we're faced with today, we can live lives that are pleasing to the Lord and that Christ will be exalted forever and ever. The big idea of this talk is knowing the final outcome really does reduce the stress and anxiety about whatever concern is filling our mind at this moment. See, it doesn't make us apathetic or fatalistic. It makes us relieved. This series ought give us more confidence in God's plan for all things. God's plan for you and me, not less confidence, because whatever we do, or don't do, whether we succeed or fail, the end result is not in doubt. The second implication there is about ambition and desire for the good things of this world. You see, to put it slightly differently, you and I are part of a bigger story. Our individual lives of 70 to 90 years, they belong to a greater gospel enterprise. It's the unifying of all things under Jesus. That's the plan that God's on about. And so that's what we ought be ambitious for and excited about. Ah, it's true. We ought enjoy and be thankful for the good things of the world that God lavishes on us in such abundance. But we must never forget what God is doing for all things across time and space. He is bringing all things under the lordship of Jesus. And so our lifelong prayer and desire is that as many knees as possible bow willingly with great joy not in defiance to the bitter end. Don't you think it'd be strange if you lived your whole life delighting only in the good things of this world, all the while unaligned or worse at cross purposes with God's sovereign will for all creation? You see, God's plan is to glorify and exalt his son forever and ever. And so Jesus' inevitable and eternal exaltation means you and I are meant to frame our decisions about career and house and family and retirement and lifestyle and suffering. All those decisions are meant to be framed in accordance with God's will to bring all things under the Lordship of Jesus. One last time, guidance asks, God, what should I do in this particular situation? Whereas gospel-driven guidance says, God, show me how your plan to bring all things to unity under Jesus helps me make sense of my situation so I can live a life worthy of you and that pleases you in every way. It seems to me actually that this is the kind of freedom we can thrive under. 
This is the confidence that the fate of the kingdom of God doesn't depend on us. Oh, heaven help God if it does. But you and I are set free to do our very best, certain that the end result is never in doubt. It's a great old hymn that was immensely significant to me in my early 20s. What can we do in God's work to prosper and increase? The kingdom of the living God, the reign of the Prince of Peace. What can we do to hasten the time, the time that will surely be when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea? And so here's where I want to conclude this first talk. Will you kneel today? So this image of the kingdom of the living God that is advancing, it leads to the takeaway image that I'd like for us at the end of this first talk. And it somewhat continues the war imagery that we heard earlier. It's the image of a knight kneeling before his king saying, I don't know what you'll ask of me, but still I pledge my life to you and your service because I know that you're worthy and I want to please you and I want to live for your honour and glory. The knight kneels before his sovereign because it signals an intention to live for the monarch's kingdom. And it signals it in the most powerful way imaginable, by kneeling. Can I say, it is never too late to enlist. Just as it's never too late to re-enlist. You know, even if you're already signed up and on board, whenever the king or queen enters the room, what do people do? They kneel. And so what we're going to do in just a moment is say, I'm going to ask you, perhaps, you know, where you are, to say the most famous Pledge of Allegiance ever written and to say it with me. And perhaps even if you'd like to, to kneel. I'd do so, except then I'll be off screen. So perhaps you might kneel and then together say with me these words at the bottom of your handout. They're very famous words from Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.